0: Welcome to a special edition of the darden admissions podcast i'm your host brett Twitty. so the podcast has taken a little bit of a break over the next week and in honor of this occasion we wanted to share a conversation from earlier this year that we really love this conversation comes from Office Hours, our ongoing faculty spotlight series, and features Dean Emeritus Bob Bruner. Uh, dean Bruner was the Dean of the Darden School of Business for ten years. He taught at Darden for over forty years, and he retired earlier this year. And it was such a treat to talk with him uh, for this Office Hours conversation. We talked with him about his background, what brought him to Darden, what it was like being Dean of the Business School. We also talk about his interest in financial crises and his recently published second edition of his book about the Panic of 1907. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's our Office Hours conversation with Dean Emeritus Bob Bruner. Welcome, everyone, to our ongoing faculty conversation series, what we call Office Hours. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and very pleased to be joined today by Dean Emeritus of the Darden School of Business, Bob Bruner. And I will say this is a particularly special Office Hours conversation. If you've been following some of the news here at the Darden School, maybe you've picked up that Dean Bruner is retiring at the end of this academic year, after 41 years of teaching and service and leadership here at the school. Dean Brunner, thank you so much for joining us for Office Hours.
1: My pleasure, thank you for having me.
0: All right, well, we always start with the same first question for all of our participants. Tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you? Uh, What's your background?
1: So I was uh, born in Chicago, uh, grew up in Wisconsin, which uh, for many of you who who may not be familiar with the geography of the US is in the upper Midwest of the country. Um, It is uh, a gorgeous part of the country and a great place to grow up. I uh, moved off to New England where I studied in college and graduate school. I worked as a banker for a few years in Chicago. And then, returned to get my doctorate from Harvard Business School, where I also received my MBA, and uh, was hired at Virginia. And I've been here uh, ever since, although I've taken brief visitor visitorships at other schools, typically outside of the U.S., but a couple here within. Um, That's where I'm from.
0: Well, how did you get to Dart? What led you uh, to the Dart School of Business?
1: I'd been a doctoral candidate at Harvard Business School, and upon finishing my degree requirements, looked around. It was a uh, difficult job market for lots of reasons, a recession being the big reason. And uh, several colleagues, uh, professors, as well as uh, friends, uh, pointed me toward uh, Virginia. I received a call from a professor here who said, why don't you come down and uh, give a seminar, tell us about your work. I did, and and they offered me a job. Uh, my wife and I came back, we looked it over and I sat in on some classes and I was struck by a number of very important attributes of the school. One was it's a relatively smaller size compared to the business schools with which I was familiar up to that point. Um, there was a genuine community feel within the school. The faculty were uh, seriously devoted to the quality of the educational experience of the students. The students bonded deeply. They got to know one another. They socialized together. And as I've seen over many years, those bonds remain vital and alive and a source of uh, support and some advantage to students as they pursue their careers thereafter. At any rate, I enjoyed the faculty community, and Charlottesville is a gorgeous place to spend a couple of years of your life as a residential student. Um, I think no less an authority than you, that than than USA Today, has labeled Charlottesville, Virginia, as the number one. A uh, small town in the United States. It's it's pretty. It's near um, natural wonders, and nat- a national park, and uh, and yet not so far away from big cities. It's a cosmopolitan city. You can get sushi here just about twenty four hours a day. Uh, great uh, South Asian food, East Asian, uh, European. Latin, I, I, I could go on and on and on, but you have all the benefits of a wonderful, deep community, plus the uh, the cosmopolitanism that I referred to.
0: Well, you're a member of the finance faculty here at at Darden, and you mentioned your background in, in banking. Uh, what got you interested in finance?
1: You know, I had never studied economics in college. This is a humbling admission that I would make. And I went to uh, business school, to Harvard for my MBA and uh, was uh, it was like a bolt of lightning. I was instructed by a fellow named John MacArthur in my first year finance course and something clicked. First of all, he was an outstanding instructor, but also the the course really resonated with me. And I took a summer job in venture capital. Uh, that too resonated with me. I returned for the second year, took more finance courses. And in the, uh, uh, the duration of that year received a wonderful job offer that uh, I accepted. I worked for a few years in, in banking and I discovered that what I really what I really liked most about my work was discovering new insights about companies and industries and the whole economy, and then communicating those insights to other people. And a couple of professors of mine said, "Bob, you know, you seem to like academic work." and putting that together with the uh, the work I most enjoyed doing in finance. I decided to return and try academia. In any event, I've I've taught finance for virtually my entire career. There is a uh, a sense of great social service in finance. You're helping to mobilize capital, mobilize savings in pursuit of uh, great ventures and projects, both public and private projects that can help society. Um, you are at the forefront, typically dealing with senior management in your work and uh, helping in uh, major transactions such as mergers and acquisitions, which is a, a field in which I specialize and have written several books. Uh, you you uh, can help companies that are struggling, that are in uh, deep distress, maybe even in bankruptcy. All of this is very, very fulfilling work. It is uh, work that requires careful uh, quantitative analysis. And as a card-carrying non-quant from my undergraduate work, I would tell everyone who feels uh, maybe at any disadvantage in that regard not to worry that a good good business school education will help you get up to speed in a field such as finance and prepare you uh, very well. Do professional work in that field. Long story short, I love the the sense of service, the intellectual challenges, the the engagement with business at a high and strategic level, and uh, many other reasons.
0: Well, you're someone that has a tremendous reputation for teaching and, and what you you uh-huh. accomplished in the classroom. Did you always know that you wanted to teach? As you you mentioned the sort of path of. Academics and being interested in these kind of questions, but you know, teaching is is something I know that you have a great passion for.
1: Yeah, you know, if you if you look back, if any one of you looked back on your life uh, to date, you I'm sure would find two, three, five, maybe ten people who uh, really resonated with you, who became examples and models for you, who who helped you shape your own vision for what you'd like to do in the way of your life's work. And uh, many of my models were teachers. They were people who helped me puzzle through the the fields in which I was uh, studying. And they did so in a way that helped me discover. They didn't uh, tell me what to do. They didn't tell me what I needed to know. But they laid out before me a a combination of, um, you know, materials, raw material, insights, problem settings, etc., and they they uh, suggested that I take a crack at solving these puzzles, and and then they would work with me to sharpen up my analysis and the way I presented it, and. Uh, at the at the end of every one of those courses, I, I would look back and say, gee, I just I feel lifted by the experience I had with uh, this particular person. I did have a few of those experiences in my working career and in some other things I did. But by and large, the people who shaped my uh, professional outlook the most were teachers. And that's what got me into this field.
0: I'm also curious uh, about your interest in history. So you are an expert on financial crises. And you, on your blog, you talk a lot about historical moments. You've written a book on the panic of 1907, which we're, we'll talk about. Um, what, what drives your interest in history, particularly given your interest in finance as well?
1: Um, and and many people have asked, how can you be a quantitatively oriented person and yet so qualitatively oriented in a field like history. And um, my answer is that uh, the two fields are actually joined at the hip. Uh, I would argue that you cannot truly understand finance and economics without also knowing something about history and the history, not only of finance and economics, but also politics and culture and uh technology and the like and therefore i've started some courses at darden uh, and elsewhere in the university of virginia that deal with the history of finance economics policy uh, democracy capitalism uh technology and in all of those courses the students have connected the dots of historical development and the the uh, challenges they will face today. In one course, a student openly queried, you know, uh, halfway into the course, gee, Bob, what's this course truly about? And I looked at the student and I said, this course is fundamentally about pattern recognition, pattern recognition. And the student stopped for a moment and then his eyes widened and, you know, ding, he he got it. And pattern recognition is a skill that is fundamental for successful practice in business, probably successful practice in politics, certainly in medicine, certainly in law and other fields. In business, it's really uh, the ability to recognize problems of being a certain type, and then connecting that recognition with tools of analysis and possible remedies that you've encountered before. And so studying history helps to burn into your memory the um, the recognition of problems and remedies and uh, uh, a, a sense of uh, how to move forward from a very dire situation.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your case writing, too. And for our attendees today, uh, in these conversations, we take about the first 20 minutes or so to kind of set a bit of background. And then we're going to turn our attention uh, to make some topical conversations, we're going to talk about uh, Dean Bruner's book about the 1907 Panic. We'll talk about his book about deals from hell, as well as uh, the recent Silicon Valley Valley Bank crisis. So stay tuned, more to come. But for now, Dean Bruner, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about case writing. Because I mean, when you read uh, your faculty description, you've published over 400 pieces of teaching materials, over 300 teaching case studies. What do you enjoy about case writing?
1: um i have likened uh, the writing of cases to being like the uh, designer of crossword puzzles or um word puzzles word games uh, maybe uh tabletop games of any kind uh i'm interested in framing a challenge for capable motivated uh, eager people to wrestle with. And so for me, when I think about the the teaching experience at Darden, uh, when I design a course, for instance, I'll frame out a subject matter. I'll interview many practitioners. I will uh, look at some of the major events in history that relate to that course, and then uh, start writing cases that I would teach in the course. And the cases would each serve up a dilemma Maybe several dilemmas, and I try to I try to engage uh, such problems throughout the United States as well as around the world, uh, problems that would engage practicing managers from the very top level of the CEO all the way down to the entry level, say, a new MBA who enters a corporation and encounters a uh, a problem it's important to recognize that sometimes what the case what what the protagonist of the case says is the problem is not the real problem and helping an organization helping an executive to discover the, what the real problem is is quite often the challenge of a new mba you're hired. You're brought in to do a standard kind of analysis, but uh-oh, you you put things together in a way, and you realize this is not sustainable. And then how do you how do you convey that to people up the up the ladder of decision making within an organization? Um, so for me, the the writing of a case is about shaping a learning experience. Uh, presenting a dilemma, a worthwhile dilemma, to students who are, as I say, pretty intelligent, well-motivated, probably well-educated based on their prior studies, and then doing so in a way that we can have a very substantial discussion about uh, both that dilemma as well as the deep underlying tools and concepts that can help resolve the dilemma, so that by the end of the case, students feel stronger students feel a sense of satisfaction with the work they've been able to do and so that the learning about those tools and concepts really stick in your memory and that's 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 why i think the case method is so powerful you can you can memorize tools and formulas and i promise you you will forget those Uh, memorizations rather quickly, and they're available in textbooks, you should keep your textbooks and have them on the shelf for ready reference. But what, what you really want to stick are the way those tools and concepts might be applied and what the, what the strengths and weaknesses of them are, and to who else you might turn for advice, and so on. Uh, It's, it's, It's the process that Darden teaches. I I often say that how we teach is what we teach. How we teach is what we teach. The how being by asking questions, by facing dilemmas, by puzzling through those in real time with, with teams of people, and by talking about our analyses and challenging one another about our assumptions, and the work we've done and trying to arrive at a decision in every case, all of that creates what I call very sticky learning. And that's what you should want to get from two years in a business school.
0: It's interesting to hear your point around the uh, that the case is trying to point students towards a dilemma decision that has to be made. Uh, one of the things that I know you've also said is that in case method learning, each case is also a rehearsal for a dilemma to come, right? One that you haven't even experienced yet, but maybe this case can help you understand how to solve that future dilemma.
1: This is so there's there's some wonderful research about what it takes to become a uh, an excellent performer. Uh, how do you become a master's level golf player or a Wimbledon level tennis player or a violinist at Carnegie Hall, or you know world- class uh, physicist. Uh, all of the research suggests that it stems from many, many, many hours of what's called, quote unquote, directed practice. So you practice in in golf, you practice a swing, you swing, you swing, you do it again, you do it again. But it isn't just the hours. It's doing it with a coach, with someone who's watching you and helping you think things through. And um, at Darden, you will study probably 500 cases over the course of a two-year residential MBA experience. And every one of those cases is like a practiced golf swing. It's a rehearsal or some dilemmas that you're going to face in the future you don't know what but it's like the tennis player or the golfer you know you go to different tennis courts or different golf courses you don't know what you're going to find but uh that memory that muscle memory in the in the case of athletics or that mental memory in the case of an mba education is is the whole thing it's the whole reason for getting a degree program education. So each case is like a practice uh, swing at uh, problems in business. That, as I said a moment ago, you know the rote part of learning you will likely forget, but it's always available in a textbook or online. You can you can access it pretty any of these formulas very easily today. What matters is the mental memory that a two-year, a good two-year MBA program should create to help set you up for success in professional life.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your time as dean. I will say, Dean Bruner. as I was preparing for this conversation, uh, there's so much ground to cover, but I want to make sure we have some time uh, to talk about your time as dean here at the Darden School. You served as dean uh, from 2005 to 2015. And I know it's hard. This is maybe an impossible question, but for you, when you think back on on that decade, uh, was was there a highlight or two, something that stands out uh, from for you from that experience?
1: Um, I could I could talk about many things. I if when you take a senior leadership position of any kind, you uh, you will be challenged and stretched in unexpected new ways, and my advice to all of you would be, uh, be ready. Uh, and, and again, that's where education counts. So very much to be ready. Um, I would tell you that, uh, being a senior leader is, uh, challenging and the challenges are, uh, many of them are gratifying. Uh, some of them are astonishing. Some are quite, quite difficult, but, um, I look back on those 10 years and I regard them to be uh, the most fulfilling thing I've done in professional life. Obviously, I'm married, I have a family, those I would regard as the most fulfilling aspects of my life, but um, I've I've written numerous books, articles, teaching materials, I've taught lots of courses, traveled a lot professionally, but serving as dean of the school still ranks as uh, the most fulfilling thing I've done. And and the reason for that is that um, I and the entire faculty and staff of the school rallied around a vision for Darden that has since uh, proven to be quite successful for us and the basis for Darden's high stature globally. You may know that Darden is... Uh, typically ranked as the number one teaching MBA school in the world. We do a lot of serious research. We're very good on that score. We serve many, many good social uh, purposes. We, we help people in lots of ways, but uh, what I'm proudest of is the commitment of our community to serve students. And actually to serve the business profession by serving students very well, because every year we send hundreds of students out into the world and we hope that those students will do great things in the world. But for us to be a great teaching school means that we have had to commit to developing original courses, original teaching materials, stuff you can't get anywhere else. Uh, taught by world-class teachers, people with energy, people with passion for their subject matter, people who care about the students and want to make time to be with the students, people who connect with students outside of class, even on weekend events or over the summers. I still connect with my former students online and in meetings uh, that I go to regularly, but all of that creates requires a very very special kind of culture that endorses that deep kind of engagement between students and faculty and I'm I'm proud that we have that
0: Well, I'd like to transition now to talk about some of your publications. So your book about the panic of 1907, which was co-written with Sean Carr, uh, who was formerly uh, leader of the Batten Institute here at the Darden School of Business. It's now in its second edition. Uh, Second edition came out in early March. I I gather that you added about 150 new pages uh, to the second edition, which is, it seems, that sounded like a lot lot to me um, from first edition to second edition. But I want to talk a bit about how you got interested in this panic in the first place. When we think about, I I will say as someone who's maybe a bit of a layperson here, when you think about financial crises in American history, maybe you hear about Great Depression, you hear about... Uh, other other moments, but I was not super familiar with the panic of 1907. I imagine a lot of people on this call, this may be the first time they're hearing about it. So how did you get interested in this?
1: Well, that warms my heart to hear you say it. And the the reason you didn't know about it is that subsequent events have vastly overshadowed it. But it turns out that the panic of 1907 was one of the pivotal uh, episodes in the financial history of the US. And indeed, it it spilled over into other countries in the world it was actually an international crisis uh, but i got into it in a roundabout way so when i did my doctoral studies in finance financial economics is the technical name of the field of my specialty but uh, when i did my doctoral studies the belief was that markets were perfect and efficient and uh, could always be trusted to to give you the right signals about, about the future. If the market declined, the market was telling you, look out, there's gonna be a recession. If the market rose, it seemed the market was telling you, think the future is bright, be prepared for that. But um, about 15, 20 years after I graduated, uh, the um, new research, began to suggest that markets were not always perfectly rational. And I I dove deeply into that research, I was very interested in, it. I'm, I'm curious about a lot of subjects, psychology is one of them. And uh, the behavioral aspects of finance have subsequently proven to be extraordinarily important to understand how how markets financial markets function how financial decision makers decide what to do what they do and so on and as a way to to sharpen my understanding of the field i decided to look at some of the biggest anomalies in finance where where does the where does the finance world seem to perform most irrationally would be the question i had in mind and bingo, financial crises emerged as I continue to do my reading. And so I decided to study one of the financial crises in great depth. I, I uh, focused on the crisis of 1907 because it led to the establishment of a central bank in the United States, the, the Federal Reserve System here, which has now today enormous influence globally. And the question is, well, how did how did the central bank uh, come into being? And <laughs> the answer is, well, the crisis of 1907 triggered a uh, dramatic change in public policy and public sentiment in favor of having a central bank, because theretofore U.S. policymakers had resisted it. Um, it's a long story, and I can get into the details of that if you would like, but suffice it to say, uh, I, I have gone on to write uh, a lot about financial crises. I'm still writing about it. I, I expect to keep writing about crises uh, well into the future, but the, the course that I founded on the history of financial crises is quite popular, and it looks at crises... From 1720 up to 2023, and there are some recurrent patterns and some things that anybody, a financial specialist or even a general manager, ought to ought to bear in mind. Mark Twain, the 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 American writer, once said, uh, "History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. It rhymes." And so, if you really understand an event like the Panic of 1907, the odds are you'll, you'll be able to make better sense about the current financial instability we're seeing or about the crisis of 2020 or 2008 or the Great Depression. And indeed, that's that's one of the big lessons of that course.
0: Well, I want to pull out some of your key takeaways from the Panic of 1907. There's There's a number of them, but there are a couple that really... Um, I guess surprised me. Um, so one of them is that this relationship between economic boom periods and financial crises um, if things are going really well, I think we we always assume oh it'll just keep going so well. and yet um you note that there is a relationship when things are going really well they' oftentimes uh, followed by a uh, financial crisis it, It's interesting to me
1: Brett you've you've labeled you you've identified one of the uh, big behavioral uh, Discoveries, those who study behavioral finance. and there's a tendency for decision makers to be biased toward the most recent experience. they take tend to take the the past, I don't know whatever whatever shocking or uh, delightful experience they've had and project it into the future almost linearly. And uh, this is very dangerous thing to do because there's very little about finance and economics or about life in general that's linear. (laughs) And to be able to understand uh, how much farther into the future current conditions might prevail before they change is one of the deep skills that an MBA education can help you develop. Um, So you mentioned the, the word boom. What a boom refers to is a Period of uh, growth in economic conditions, uh, buoyant times. Uh, it's typically measured by growth in gross domestic product, also called GDP, and uh, or measured by GDP per person or GDP per capita, as the the technical phrase is. And the GDP uh, will grow per- for a period, and then and then and then it'll peak. The the economy will have reached its full capacity, and then companies will begin to cut back on uh, capital investment. Consumers will begin to say, "Gee, you know, I, I don't, uh, how many more filet uh, uh, mignons can I consume? I'm going to start eating hamburger for a while, etc." So this leads to a downturn. Um, Most booms do not result in a financial crisis, but some booms do. And the book uh, details some of the attributes of booms that are crisis prone. They tend to be booms in which uh, credit, particularly the credit offered by banks or other lenders, expands uh, very greatly. And the expansion of credit is generally a good thing. It helps companies raise the money to expand their businesses, it helps consumers uh, buy a house or a second car for the family or whatever, but um, booms in credit are also associated with speculation and the, the overreach by financial decision makers to commit too much money in very dubious ways. And sooner or later, the realization of the impact of those speculations causes a sharp uh, redirection I I can't I can't stop here I, I need to add that typically every every crisis begins with a an economic shock of some kind which really makes financial decision makers reassess how wise their recent spending and investing has been and uh, they will, they will begin to cut back sharply and and thus the, the crisis accelerates. But um, so look for look for booms, booms that grow very sharply and are associated with a, a extreme uh, growth in lending and credit. And then with sharp increases in uh, speculation are uh, episodes to be very, very careful about.
0: That reminds me of another one of your takeaways: that uh, banking, by its nature, creates fragility. Um, that this lending, I guess, you can stretch uh, too far in in some ways.
1: Um, uh, banks are fragile, plain and simple. And we, over the years, we, the United States, and almost all countries, have gone to great efforts to put in place regulations to help stabilize the banking system, the financial system. Uh, But still, the instability remains, and it arises because banks perform a very important function in society. They, They transform money. They take deposits from people like you and me, individual depositors, and they guarantee that we'll be able to get our money out on demand. So in theory, we could put the money in today and take it out tomorrow. That's called the bank is borrowing from us short term. That's called borrowing short. And banks, on the other hand, take that money and aim to make a profit by lending it out at a higher rate of return. But typically that requires them to commit to, to the people who borrow from banks that they can have that money for a longer period of time. Might be three months, might be a year, might be five years. It could be a 30-year mortgage. And so you see right there, banks borrow short and they lend long. And that becomes a problem when depositors, people like you and me, start to worry about the bank and decide to take our deposits out. And that's called a run on the bank. And a run on the bank will... Uh, threaten the stability of the bank might force it into insolvency. Fortunately, the government provides some uh, insurance for our deposits up, up to a certain amount, but uh, uh, that that instability is what's behind the notion that the financial system is fragile. And a good MBA program will help you deepen your understanding of systemic fragility and indeed your understanding of systemic crises. But much of the story about what we're witnessing today in the US and Britain and many other countries uh, stems from that inherent fragility in, in banking.
0: Interesting to think about a bank run in this current context where we are much more networked than we ever have been. Uh, information flows much more quickly and banking is largely digital now. Um, how, to, how to think about uh, things like a bank run in this current age?
1: Um, it means that the the uh, development of a run could could now become extremely active. What we observed in the panic of 1907 was that a run developed over the course of a week or 10 days uh and even at at the peak the uh the banks were many many financial institutions were able to uh service the depositors and give them their money back but uh the the weakest banks were not they they um suspended as, as the saying goes and were thrown into insolvency but today what it means is um you need to be very, very attentive to conditions in financial markets, because money moves at, at the speed of an email. Um, this is an era of what I'd call hot money. The phrase hot money is a phrase you'll come to learn about in in economics and in finance at Darden. But it, it uh, refers to the uh, flows of savings and capital uh, from one bank to another or from a bank into the stock market or from the stock market back into uh, US government securities, which are very safe, it could refer to flows of capital across borders. Uh, Today, uh, countries such as Turkey and Sri Lanka are experiencing great uh, financial difficulty uh, for a host of reasons, but in, in no small part because of the flow of capital, the flow of hot money out of those economies. And being able to recognize the circumstances of hot money flows it will be important, especially for those of you who pursue a career in finance. The Panic
0: of 1907, you mentioned pattern recognition, you mentioned history rhyming. Is there anything that we can learn from Panic of 1907 to help us understand what happened in 2008, are, are there similarities between uh, the financial crisis in 2008 and what happened 100 years or so prior?
1: Oh, there, there are many similarities, although we need to be careful that we don't over equate the crises. Look, looked at in minute detail, the crises seem to be incredibly different, but there are some regularities <clears throat> from crisis to crisis. First of all, there were booms in 1907 and in 2008. And in 2023, uh, there were uh, shocks. There were triggering events that led to the uh, the onset of the crisis cycle. In 1907, there was an earthquake in San Francisco that triggered a wave of insurance claims, that triggered uh, the flows of money out of money centers in Europe and into the U.S. That that caused central banks around the world to react in adverse ways. It, the, the the situation worsened in the us uh the the shock was the sudden plummet in uh house prices everybody most people virtually all people believe that house prices would only rise over time and uh, yet to everyone's shock and surprise uh, they began to fall in the mid 2000s and that triggered um sharp declines in the value of mortgages, particularly the riskiest kinds of mortgages called subprime debt. And uh, the, the defaults on subprime debt led to the failure of, of uh, shadow banks. That's the third regularity I would highlight. In all crises, the, the epicenter of the crisis breaks out in the shadows. Not in the center. There's a good. There's a good op-ed in today's Wall Street Journal uh, by uh, the uh, uh, Joseph Sternberg, who refers to this. But uh, I've written about it. Uh, others have. Uh, the The shadow of the shadow segment of the financial system would consist of smaller and less well regulated, and perhaps more aggressively. Uh, managed uh, pension funds, money market funds, uh, insurance companies, perhaps uh, hedge funds certainly would be in that category. Uh, mortgage loan originators, but people who are networked into the banking system in very important ways uh, can do stupid things. Let's let's be blunt about it, and uh, they're they're. Failures of judgment then spill over into the center of the financial system, into the big financial institutions. Uh, so those three attributes—the boom, the shock, the uh, the outbreak and the shadows—typically there's some contagion uh, into the rest of the financial system. And uh, and I'll stop there. I I love talking about this subject, but I won't I won't. Uh, uh, poach into the time of, for Q&A with uh, all of you in the audience.
0: Well, I'll ask a question that's very timely, right? So we're talking about financial crises. Unfortunately, we had a recent one here with Silicon Valley Bank. I know you've been talking uh, about this recent crisis. You've, you've written about it on your blog. Uh, there's a great uh, recent session that you participated in that the University of Virginia's Miller Center hosted, uh, talking about financial crises and, and touching on the, the current current day. Um, what do you make of the Silicon Valley Bank crisis? Um, how, how can we think about this? Under, understand this particular crisis?
1: Um, uh, the the immediate failure of Silicon Valley Bank was a crisis of management and brought on by the bank itself. It had positioned its uh, its assets uh, in long-term bonds, heavily in long-term bonds, which, here we go, the A triggering event was the very sharp rise in interest rates caused by the central bank of the US, the Federal Reserve System. Nobody expected interest rates to rise this fast, uh, this quickly, uh, this so soon. And um, the bank was unprepared, the asset portfolio of the bank uh, proved, uh, caused uh, substantial losses at the bank. And when the depositors began to fear the impact of the losses, they 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 triggered a run. And the, the bank had to be closed before all of its resources were exhausted and the regulators took it over and so on. But that bank, the, the failure of that bank occurred in the context of failure of some other financial shadow financial institutions, banks who were close, smaller banks who were closely affiliated with the cryptocurrency field. Um, They were associated with uh, the near failures of pension funds in the UK. Uh, There are fears about the stability of the uh, commercial finance market in the US uh, now, with work from home and hybrid work, companies may not need to have the extensive investment in office space. So you can see uh, that there uh, there are lots of deeper things happening in the U.S. economy and the economies of countries around the world that we're still we're still trying to figure out. Uh, surely the venture capital firms were. Uh, uh, shadow finance institutions that had a big influence on triggering the runs they they encouraged the tech companies out in the uh the san francisco bay area to withdraw their cash deposits from silicon valley bank and other banks very quickly uh, uh spice it to say um the deeper cause of this current distress is the turmoil induced and this is my theory, my my thesis, I'm writing about it, but I'll give you the advance notice. Uh, the deeper trigger is the uh, pandemic of 2020 to 2022 uh, and the reaction of governments and central banks around the world to flood uh, their economies with money in an effort to keep the economies from going into a tailspin. I think we all agree that was a noble intention. Uh, In the United States, I think uh, some of the better judgment today includes that the government and the central bank here overdid it. They put too much money out there. And sure enough, in the winter of 2022, inflation began to rise sharply. So the central bank did what we want central banks to do, and it reacted to impose some policies aimed at reducing inflation, namely by taking money out of the economy and by raising interest rates. Well, we're dealing with that now, and that has triggered instability in these uh, smaller, less well-managed, perhaps less well-regulated uh, shadow banking sectors. And I, I predict that it will take at least another year for us to work through the the crisis conditions here. It looks like the Fed is going to continue to raise uh, rates in an effort to bring inflation down. Inflation is running at about a five to 6% annual rate right now, which is uh, not healthy for our economy or any economy truly. And uh, you should know that inflation is a hidden tax on uh, consumers and companies and uh, causes all kinds of social instability. We, we want our countries to be rid of inflation. And if I would fault uh, government leaders in any way, it would be they, they have not taken that case to the public very effectively. But um, many academics are beginning to carry that message. And we'll see whether it becomes a sticky piece of learning.
0: It's interesting to think about the government role and response uh, to financial crises. Um, this idea that, well, you certainly saw it in, in 2008 with the bank bailouts, a little bit different uh, in this particular moment with the FDIC uh, limit being raised, basically saying, we'll, we'll make all of the depositors at, at these banks whole. Uh, but nevertheless, it feels like government's in a tough position because you want to quell whatever is going on and to respond forcefully but yet you could potentially create a moral hazard for other banks or other financial actors down the road where they know that a bailout is coming, no matter what happens, because the systemic risk is too great. Um, how? I mean, what have you learned from studying the government response to these kinds of financial crises?
1: So moral hazard is a, is a phrase, is a very, very important phrase. And if if the audience, members of the audience have not encountered it you should uh, become familiar, and a good MBA education will help you gain that familiarity. but uh, it it uh, refers to the tendency of people to abuse insurance of all kinds. you can think of the um, <clears throat> health insurance if if uh, if we have government guaranteed health insurance, the risk is that Uh, you and I might undertake a lifestyle that would be very risky or much riskier or ill-advised in the belief that you and I might have that we can always turn to the medical system and the government will pay for the treatment and we'll be cured and so on. Uh, uh, People who have uh, other kinds of insurance might uh, tend to behave in risky fashion in the belief that Uh, no matter what, they'll be made whole. So it is on the part of financial decision makers and banks. Uh, They might believe that if uh, they do some wild and crazy things, the government will always step in to rescue them and uh, turn them around. Um, Surely if a bank is big enough, and uh, extensively wired into the financial system, extensively connected. And the government has a strong incentive to rescue that bank. So there's a phrase called too big to fail or too interconnected to fail, which prompts uh, governments to step forward. And some of the biggest financial institutions would be in that category. In in turn, governments have uh, decided to Subject those very big financial institutions to extremely intensive uh, supervisory scrutiny and uh, and management regulatory oversight. so that's that's kind of the response. but uh, moral hazard is a it's a general idea that um, you need to be careful about this. This could exist in any organization, any business you're in. If you're a manager who repeatedly bails out a protege, the protege could well begin to assume, "Hey, I'm I'm so well liked by my boss that no matter what happens, I'm always going to have a job." And look out. So be careful about the signals you send. Um, I think that uh, the the immediate uh, concern here is that the government the US government stepped in uh, virtually to guarantee the deposits of any size of Silicon Valley bank. And that has created an expectation that the government would do the same for any other bank here in the US. And, uh, and if so, that uh, those banks would be uh, uh, free to uh, to do as they will. And we, we do want the discipline of markets to, to help managers make sound decisions. It really has to do with helping resources to be allocated to their best and highest use in an economy. And if, if managers stop paying attention to the discipline of markets, the risk is that we will have zombie banks as has been the case in some foreign countries, where uh, and and potentially here in the U.S., where governments have stepped in to rescue banks and uh, banks that are essentially insolvent—that is to say, bankrupt—that is to say, their assets are worth less than all the liabilities that they owe—and uh, that's terrible. We Uh, In those cases, we ought to let the market discipline work. We ought to help those companies, those banks, through a resolution process where uh, lawyers would divide up the, uh, the assets of the bank and send them off to healthier institutions, wiser institutions, presumably, who would be able to apply those resources in more sensible ways. So there's a, uh, there's a downside to government rescues, there's moral hazard, there's the risk of zombie institutions and misallocation of capital. But uh, I don't think we're there quite yet, but it's useful at this point in time for us to bear it in mind and watch closely to be sure that government decision makers are held accountable to the policies they adopt.
0: I have a couple more questions for you, Dean Brunner. Uh, The first question uh, relates to, we have a number of incoming students uh, who will be starting here at Darden in, in August in full-time MBA, part-time MBA, executive MBA programs. Um, what's a piece of advice you would share with them as they prepare for their MBA journeys?
1: Um, Darden offers some wonderful pre-registration courses if you have an opportunity to take them. Um, getting up to speed on some of the uh, 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 quantitative aspects of the uh, of the MBA program would be a good idea. And I, this would be true for attending any MBA program. These would be courses in accounting, basically double entry bookkeeping uh, to, to learn some of the language there. It's a very interesting subject and worth uh, your time, uh, learning a little bit about how to build an Excel spreadsheet model, uh, learning a little bit about how to uh, uh, estimate the present value of a stream of future cash flows. All of this can be found at Darden in the form of pre-registration programs. You just come a, a week or two early. It's a, It's actually kind of a fun way to get to know some classmates and to find your way around school and around the city but uh there are also many online uh courses some some very good some for free others uh are higher but i would do that my second piece of advice was uh, suspend um, uh, suspend your assumptions come in come into the mba program eyes wide open and energized and eager to engage with classmates, uh, eager to participate, eager to work hard, and um, you'll get the maxi. I think that, um, so in my field in finance, um, again and again, I've seen over the years, students who've worked in the finance field and investment banking, for instance, might come in and say, I know all of this stuff. and within a few weeks, their eyes are rolling. My gosh, you know, why didn't anybody tell me about this? And so even even to people who bring some field experience, some work experience in a particular field, suspend so your preconceptions. Uh, and my third and final piece of advice would be to uh, trust the process. If we, we will create learning teams, uh, who will meet typically the night before every day when cases are taught. And in those learning teams, you're invited to share your thoughts and concepts about a case with each other and uh, participate in those. Uh, don't uh, don't assume that it's uh, time less well spent. Believe me, even if you're a field expert, you will learn a lot by helping to explain some ideas to the other members of your learning team or the other members of your section. So uh, do a little pre-work, uh, sus- suspend your preconceptions, and uh, trust the process. It really works.
0: So you've been at Darden for over 40 years. And I'm curious, when you think back on, on your experience here, I mean, what's kept you here so long? What has Darden meant to you?
1: Um, Darden has meant so much. It is a an extraordinary community. I really, uh, I can't find the the, uh, the the comparable like of it. It is a a, a relatively smaller, uh, but uh, community that is with with very deep bonding. It's in a lovely place. Uh, we are devoted to the quality of the MBA learning experience. Uh, I've, I have visited at many other schools. I respect them all. But uh, I, I find few or none uh, who rise to the level of a deep commitment of our faculty and staff. Uh, and that's what sets Darden apart. Think of Darden as a it's a very, very high-end restaurant. You know you can go you can go get fast food at some restaurants, you can get takeout. you can you can buy the ingredients yourself and cook at home. Uh, people who come to Darden come because they want an intense learning experience with other great students. The students who come to us tend to be students who want to be challenged, who want to be stretched. Uh, as I've said in other ways, Eagles, you know the the national bird of the United States. Eagles tend to flock together. They want to be where other high performance people are, and they don't want to be lectured at for two years. You got plenty of that in undergraduate school, I'm sure. They want to come here because they want to they want to mix it up. They want to engage with uh, with other great students and with some of the best teaching faculty in the world. Um, I I adore that culture. I think Darden is special. I have stayed with the the school all these years because I've really bonded with the values of the school and what we stand for.
0: Well, this is the last question. Uh, you are a book lover. I'm not going to let you get out of out of here without making some book recommendations. I will say uh, to our attendees today, if you haven't checked out Dean Bruner's blog, highly recommend it. Every year, this is one of my favorite posts, every year he shares a book roundup, things that he's read uh, that he would particularly recommend. Uh, So Dean Bruner, for our attendees today, if they've gotten interested in the things that we've talked about uh, here, what are three books uh, you would recommend for them?
1: Um, I am currently reading a book by uh, Roger Lowenstein called uh, uh, Ways and Means, and it's about uh, the United States government of the north as well as the cover- confederate government of the south uh financed uh, their respective armies in the u.s civil war it's a it's a remarkable saga in financial history and quite instructive of some of the larger lessons of this course uh, that i developed on financial crises a second book that i highly recommend is uh, a book by Charles Dickens. He's a British author in the 19th century. And the book is titled A Tale of Two Cities. And it's about, um, uh, it's really about the French Revolution. The two cities are London and Paris. And it's about the difficulties of a wealthy family in France to deal with the legacy of being part of the nobility, part of the elites of France in the time of a revolution. Uh the One of the heroes of the book is a fellow named Jarvis Lorry, who's a private banker. Think of that. You don't see many private bankers being heroes in novels. Charles Dickens thought that A Tale of Two Cities was his favorite work of, uh, of literature. Um, I would say that uh, I'm currently reading some books about meritocracy uh, and perhaps the most provocative of these books is a book by Daniel Markovitz, and it's titled titled The Meritocracy Trap. I think for for all of us in academia, as well as for all of you who are surely the beneficiaries of systems of the recognition of merit, you would do well to consider both the criticisms of what we have today, which is a meritocratic system. As well as um, you know, its uh, its strengths. Um, so I would recommend those three to provoke your thinking.
0: Well, Dean Brunner, thank you so much for coming on Office Hours. It was such a pleasure. We covered so much ground here. Thank you for answering all of my questions and to our attendees. Uh, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, these events are such such a pleasure. So much fun uh, sharing the incredible faculty. Uh, here at the Darden School of Business with you. As always, we'll share out the recording from this conversation on our admissions podcast, Experience Darden, and the Exec MBA podcast. And be sure to keep an eye on the Discover Darden blog for video uh, from this session. But have a wonderful weekend, and thank you so much for joining and for your interest in the Darden School of Business.
1: Best of luck, everybody.
0: And that was our Office Hours conversation with Dean Emeritus Bob Bruner from April 2023. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears, we can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.